Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray together. Dear God, we do send out those men, women, and children and ask you to bless and watch over them. And we ask you to do the same for us. We gather to be encouraged, to be disciplined, to get clarity. Some of us may have come in this morning burdened. Some of us may have come in joyful. Some of us may have come in concerned for people we love who aren't even here. Some of us may be too worried about our brackets. Lord, we bring our full selves to you. You say to love the Lord with all our heart, and whether our heart feels small or big, this morning we offer it to you and ask you to teach and instruct us. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, my name's Dean Miller, and I've been here lots, and I'm always glad to come back, but I'm so glad to join you. I joked with my son, Duncan, that if I pulled my hamstring coming up, he had to take and read my sermon, and then I almost bit it on the stairs, so I'm not going to make that joke again when I'm here. If you have a Bible and can turn to Mark 11, that'd be great. If you have a hard copy or a soft copy Bible, if you don't, that's fine. Um, I'm so glad again to be with you. Uh, we, my church, Church of the Ascension, and your church, Christ Church Vienna, are in a series again together. We've done this several times walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be looking at Mark 11 this morning. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever made a trip or changed your geography because you love somebody, right? Something that might have been surprising, like if we'd have a, had a, a drone over your life and watched your pattern of driving or walking, would we see you do something differently with your geography because you love somebody? Um, I, my wife and I met in grad school and seminary, and her, her house was sort of on the way home from seminary. And I might happen to drop by because it was, quote, on the way, right? But if you had charted the quickest way home to my house, it really wasn't the quickest way. The geography, the drone came would have showed you, oh, he did something differently because he likes this girl, right? Some of you um, may have done something for your loved one on Valentine's Day, right? Like your geography might have been different. We might have charted where you went or something you bought from above on the map. It would have looked differently. Some of you might be in this high school and you might chart the way you walk through the hallway, right? Like, oh, I just happened to be here in this hallway. Where you go when you walk to class? How did that happen? Oh, right? Sometimes love affects our geography. 
Again, we're in this series together, our two churches, and we're looking at the second half of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 8 through Mark 16 through Lent. And a couple things to remember each week as you look at Mark together, as we do this together, is Mark, Mark's Gospel is the shortest, and he is really driving to a point. He's driving to the cross. Mark, which we believe he learned from Peter, most of these stories firsthand from Peter, Peter and Mark are talking about how Jesus went to the cross. What we often call in our church the U-catastrophe, borrowing from J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. The good catastrophe, the cross. This thing that looks terrible, utterly terrible, is actually utterly fantastic for us. So there's this U-catastrophe happening, and so everything in Mark, you should ask yourself, what is happening here? Why is this drive? What is the energy about that Mark is writing about? How is it affected by the cross? And he's always asking two questions. Okay, who is Jesus? Okay, who is Jesus? He tells us this in chapter 1. The thing he's doing in this book is who is Jesus and then how should we respond to him? So again, as you sit there on Sunday mornings and as you read, we're all in the same daily reading plan, your church and our church. As you read those passages, you should ask, how is Mark asking me these questions in this passage? Who is Jesus and how should we respond to who he is? And he's giving examples of people asking that question and, of course, responding to him well or not well. We've been in Mark 8. We started there on Ash Wednesday. And in particular, our church, we looked at some of the, the parts of Mark 8 on Ash Wednesday and the intersection between the seen and the unseen. Like, we believe in our bodies that there's something bigger than our bodies. And that's in many ways what Lent, and some of us are keeping practices during Lent with our bodies because we believe it's not just about our bodies. Then on Mark 9, you all heard, and we heard Johnny that afternoon, preach about the cross and also the way of the cross, right? It isn't just about the cross, but how should we respond is affected by the cross. And so in chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus is hammering to his listeners, it's not just I'm going to the cross, but then if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up my cross and follow me. And he has to tell us that in chapter 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10, because we're not that bright. And he has to keep coming back to it and telling it to us over and over He's going to touch on it a little bit again in the passage we're in this morning. Last week in Mark 10, you all looked at Mark 10. We focused in Mark 10 on the way Jesus pursued and loved this rich young ruler by telling him very direct things that seem seemingly harsh, but are really inviting the ruler in to a deeper life and to let go of the things he's gripping so tightly. For him, it was wealth and pride. And this morning, we're again in Mark 11. Let me walk you through a sketch of the whole book and what struck me as I studied this week. It really begins at the end of Mark 10, where Jesus is out in Jericho, okay, about 15, 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And Mark and Jericho begins this series of descriptions telling us where Jesus is on the move. And it's, it's kind of weird. As you read it, you begin to go, gosh, why does he keep telling me? where Jesus is going. Have you ever had a story from somebody who went on a trip? And what you want to hear, right, are kind of the highlights, right? Like, tell me how the trip impacted you or this big experience. And instead, what they do is they give you, like, the travel log. Like, well, first we went here, and then we went there, and then we went there, and then we went there. And at some point, you're like, okay, dude, I'm done. I don't really need you to give me a map, like a literal description of a map. I can look at a map. Tell me about the trip. So it's striking that suddenly Mark is, is highlighting places in geography. Surely other things happen at the end of Mark 10 and Mark 11. Conversations, Jesus teaching, some anticipation of Passover. There's literally thousands of people going to Jerusalem, not just Jesus and the disciples. There have to be other things happening. But Mark says, well, they're in Jericho. 
And this blind man sees who Jesus is, Bartimaeus, and he says, King of David, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus gives him sight, and then we move to Mark 11, and John, or not John, but Jesus suddenly, we find out, is on his way to Jerusalem. Moving from Jericho, and we go, okay, wait a minute, Jerusalem, we've heard of Jerusalem before, right? Like, how many of you have ever heard of Jerusalem? Pretty big deal in the Gospels, right? It's called Salem in Genesis 14. David takes it and makes it his home. It's destroyed in 587 B.C. It's rebuilt after the exile. It's now the centerpiece of the country again, and there's a temple there that Herod has spent decades rebuilding on behalf of sort of getting the favor of the Jews. Jerusalem is a big deal. And Peter lets Mark know that throughout his gospel, throughout this story of Jesus, Jesus has been lots of places, 35 different places at least in the gospels, 35 different places, but for a long stretch of Mark, there's been no record of Jerusalem. He spent the previous nine months in Galilee, and he hasn't been to Jerusalem actually in years. So when you see that in Mark 11, you should go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. This is suddenly a very different story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been notably absent. But you kind of knew at some point, for it all to come to a head, Jesus was going to have to go back to Jerusalem. It's like in Star Wars, right? Like at some point, Luke has to face the emperor. And at some point, Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. So now he's going, and he's going during Passover. He's not going in the back door. He's going in the celebration of the entire Jewish calendar. And as he comes to Jerusalem, like if we're in Jericho there, we suddenly go through Bethany, which is about three kilometers away, closer than this high school is to Oakton High School. Bethany is here. We know from other Gospels that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, and he does something pretty big with Lazarus, right? What's he do with Lazarus? Raises him from the dead. Okay, so Bethany, that's pretty important. Then Bethpage is in between Bethany and Jerusalem. That's another place or even closer, around the literal outskirts of Jerusalem. And then we find out he's on his way around the Mount of Olives, climbs this mountain, and he has this big entrance, right, which typically we study in a few weeks. Right? It's Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, every gospel handles, handles that entrance differently, focuses on different things. But if you read Mark and then you read the other gospels and you compare, you'll, say, you'll realize this is kind of a muted entrance. This is not as significantly trumpeted as it is in the other gospels. It's, it has all the same messianic overtones. The, the choir is still singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, God save us. Quoting Psalm 18, 118, the songs of deliverance that the Israelites would say during Passover. But it's still muted. Of the 11 verses on this entry, seven of the verses are how they get the donkey. That's, okay, that's weird, right? Like, again, there's no, nothing in here that's a surprise, but that's weird. Like, Jesus rode on a donkey. There, I've covered that. I don't need to tell you anything else, but seven of the 11 verses are about the donkey. And then after that, we see he goes down the Mount of Olives, and where does the day finish? It goes to the temple. Jesus goes to the temple after the entry and the priests see who Jesus is and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord becomes real and they bow down and they sacrifice to Jesus and the whole country turns. Which is of course not what happens although it's what should have happened. What happens instead is if you read this part of Mark 11 you'll see he goes to the temple he looks around 
Nothing happens. And he leaves. And that's the end of the day. It says then they go somewhere else to go back out to Bethany, three kilometers outside the city. So the finish isn't a coronation, it's a foreshadowing. What should have been a coronation for the king is just this sort of dead end. And then if you keep reading, again, there's all these statements of geography. They go back out to Bethany. The next morning, we find out, they come back into Jerusalem. Jesus caused a big ruckus. He cleanses the courts. The temple courts are full of money changers and people trying to cut through Jerusalem. And so Jesus overturns. The second time he's done this, he overturns tables. He makes a huge ruckus, which is the most definitive threat to the religious establishment we have, which is why they come at the end of chapter 11 to confront Jesus on his authority. Mark 11 doesn't finish there. They go back to Bethany, we find out. Then they come back into Jerusalem and that's when he gets confronted by the religious leaders at the end of the chapter. Bethany, Jerusalem, temple. Bethany, Jerusalem, temple. Bethany, Jerusalem, temple. Okay, Mark. I know there's other things happening. I know you're having meals. I know there's interactions. We know there's other conversations from other parts of the Gospels. Like, why all this geography? What is going on? What is Jesus doing? Well, he's making a turn, right? Out of Galilee, he's making this history-altering turn to go to the cross. And the reason he's going to the cross is to defeat death for you and me. And as he makes this turn, he's going to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the power and the authority in the land. And where he goes helps us understand, again, who he is and how we should respond. Who he is. First, he goes to Jericho, which is this center of Roman power. It's where Herod built his winter palace. It was sort of a retirement or winter place for the wealthy of Israel. It's a pagan place. But if you read the Gospels, you see Jericho's noteworthy because unexpected people see who Jesus is and respond appropriately. The beggar, Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, Right? The rich young ruler, we found out last week, couldn't give all he had. But in Luke 19, which is just a few paragraphs later in Luke 19 from the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, this tax collector, says, Rabbi, I give all I have. I'll repay everybody, multiples of what I've taken from them. So in this symbol of Roman power, Jesus is messianic power in Jericho, that place. Then the geography again moves. Now we're from Jericho on our way. And of course, Jerusalem is something that should be in bright lights. Wow, he's going to Jerusalem. Something's going to happen. So get our attention these next few chapters as we read. It's the cultural center. It's the religious center. It's the political center both of Israel but also of Rome. There's all kinds of Roman power centered here, not only in Caesarea, up the road. It's such a politically charged place that during Passover, the Romans would send extra troops to make sure nothing broke out, no revolution breaks out. And it's also the center of, of the false idols of Israel, right? The priestly idols, the national political idols. And therefore, it's the center of what Jesus hopes will happen. 
You read this gospel, you read the gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus' deep desire and his deep brokenness as he enters into the city is that they would in fact repent, that what they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would in fact be true. And with that lens, that little sentence, and I encourage you to read Mark 11 today, where you see Jesus go into the temple, look around, and then leave, is heartbreaking. Because it should be a coronation. Jesus should enter the center of their life and be coronated. Jesus should enter the center of your life and be coronated. But instead, one scholar says it's like business as usual. And it's actually, it's a huge deal, but it's such a small deal that these Roman troops and the extra-Jewish troops don't even arrest Jesus after the entry. If it was really a threat, because what's being proclaimed on the streets is sort of political, if it was really that big a threat, Rome would come and have arrested Jesus then, not later. Here's the king of David. The only guy who gets it is the blind guy in Jericho. So the fig tree paragraphs that you'll read in Mark 11 are bracketing a live parable. What Jesus is saying is Israel is the fig tree that has died and they will be judged. And that scene is terribly sad. This is the center of the power structure. Jesus has to go. It's why he keeps going. Bethany, Jerusalem temple, again and again and again. At the end of the chapter, all three branches of power are what confront Jesus. It'd be like if leaders from the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch here in the U.S. went and confronted somebody. It's the chief priest, the teacher of the law, and the elder saying to Jesus, in what authority do you have to do these things? And in that sense, the, the drone cam of Jesus, this geography is incredibly descriptive and powerful for us. It's an act of love for Jesus to go back in there again and again and again. Just like it's an act of love for him to tell the rich young ruler, give up your wealth. The center of the temple at the Holy of Holies is where God meets with his people. Jesus has to go and reorient them to what's true there. That Jesus is the center. And the crickets he hears as he finishes that triumphal entry are, again, tragic. It's the center of the opposition to me, or to him. How many of you have a bracket in the NCAAs and a team you hope wins? How many of you are rooting against the UVA because you don't want Johnny's team to win? <laughs> but put your hands down, Johnny said. Okay, but what if, you, what if your team is in the, still in now and every other team gets the flu and, and your team's declared the winner? because everybody got sick and couldn't play over the next couple weeks. Would any of us really think you were the winner? When you wore your sweatshirt here to church in mid-April saying you were the national champion in, in a hat, wouldn't we all make fun of you behind your back? We, we would. Because you didn't beat anybody. You didn't beat the best. And Jesus has to beat the best. Jesus has to confront the power in the land. Jesus has to confront the Roman power and the Jewish power. Jesus has to go to the cross and confront death. He has to. Otherwise, he's not really who he is, and our response to him would be affected. And he's not just going as an act of love for Israel. He's going as an act of love for the Gentiles. The courts he's cleaning, that he's overthrowing the money changers, and he's driving people out. And I, I can't 
You, could, you have a setup where you could actually stage this on Easter. You could actually send you guys. Don't tell anybody, but go ahead. Um, they, after church, you guys could come in and take all the coffee tables and the bread and just throw it out in the street and say, we're here to worship. We don't want this here. It's not why we're doing it. It's that kind of thing. It would be so disruptive. And the reason he's doing it is because that's the court of the Gentiles. And the passages he's quoting from the Old Testament are saying this is to be a house of prayer for the nations. And what is happening there, the money changing needs to happen. There's exorbitant rates. That doesn't need to happen. We know from other Gospels. But all these place, things that needed to be set up are set up in the court of the Gentiles where the nations are to be invited to pray to Yahweh. In all of Jerusalem, apparently, that's the only place the money could be changed. It's not. But for some reason, it's been set up here. It's also a cut through. It's the easiest way to cut through to other parts of Jerusalem. So it's become a thoroughfare for commerce not a avenue into the presence of the Lord for Gentiles, which I bet is most, if not all of us here. This is about people. Jesus' movements are about people. So what's he doing? That is what he's doing. He's moving to confront death on behalf of Israel and you and me. Second, how is he doing this? Again, he's headed to the cross so he can invite us then, therefore, into the way of the cross. And he's doing it as this counterculture Messiah, right? He's coming in on a donkey. The reason there are seven verses on the donkey is because he's coming in on a very humble animal. He's not coming in on a Roman charger with trumpets and troops. He's not coming as a political answer, which is what people wanted. Again, the assumption was when the Messiah would come, they would overthrow Rome. There might have been some assumption that Israel, gosh, I hope they could maybe reorder some of the way the priests impose all these laws on us. But most of the assumptions were the Messiah will come and do for us what we want and take care of them. So picture in your mind all the thems you'd love to see taken care of. Maybe the neighbors who stay up late. Maybe City Hall that's made decisions you don't like. Maybe our national milieu. Everybody's excited for the Messiah to come and take care of stuff out there. Nobody's excited for the Messiah to come and go right to the center of the temple of their hearts. No, thank you. Which is why the political leaders come at the end of chapter 11 and say, by, what, by whose authority are you doing this? Because clearly if you came from God, you would have talked to us first. We'd have told you the least destructive and frustrating way to clean the temple out and confront us. And in this journey, what we see are the people who understand who Jesus is are consistently the unexpected people. Zacchaeus, the beggar, over and over again in chapters 8, 9, and 10. The children. The children are there as an example to you and me. The children you just sent out are not the future of the church. The children are the church. And the way they listen down the hallway should be the ways we listen in here. This unexpected Messiah is consistently doing unexpected things. He's not just begging a little from us. He's begging our whole lives. It's not Jesus and something else. It's Jesus and all of you. Jesus clearly is not a king from this land. He doesn't meet any expectations we have. He's the lion, yes, but he's the lamb. And he's willing to overturn completely the institutions, the nations, your stubbornness and my stubbornness on your behalf. He is not a nice teacher. What he does in the courts of the Gentiles is not nice. 
And Mark could have just given us descriptions of all the teaching Jesus made during the week, but he's not. He's giving you an up-top drone cam look at Jesus' geography of love. He's doing these things. Now, why? That's what he's doing and how he's doing it, but why? Why does Jesus do all this? Why not just sit in Bethany, right? Like in Bethany, people love him. And Bethany has a place to stay. In Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty good testimony, right? Like anybody who doesn't like him there, you can be like, well, uh, here's Lazarus. It's safe. Why the center of Jerusalem? There's probably lots of other places in Jerusalem he could go. We know there's at least a place he went for the upper room, so there's people who are for Jesus in Jerusalem. That would be easier than the center of the temple. Why does he go there? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because God loves you enough to pursue you and to change his geography to find you. If you map Jesus out, it's for you. The only way to free you and me is for him to die on the cross. The only way to free you and me is to go all the way to the center of the temple and confront the devil who is at the center of the temple. Jesus loves those in Jericho, and he loves those on the side of the road, and he loves those on the way to Jerusalem, and he loves those in Bethany and Bethpage and the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem and the center of the temple. Even the Pharisees who hate him, he loves. And Jesus loves the entire world because he's clearing out the court of the Gentiles. Part of the geography includes the nations in the house of prayer. You and me. Every place you read about tomorrow on a front page of a newspaper, Jesus loves. Every place where we might know someone who works for the State Department, Jesus loves. Jesus' geography of love is vast and global. Because your life, your life, to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is worth his death. Your life is worth his death. And so his geography is affected by that love. So the places you read about, again, I'd encourage you to read up to this chapter and then begin to note how often Mark is telling you about the geography enough to, again, you go, I'm frustrated. Why are you doing that? It's to highlight for you what Jesus is about to do. So, our response, just two thoughts as we go to worship and then communion. How is our geography of love like Jesus' love? How is your geography of love like Jesus' love? How is it affected? Could we map, could we drone cam you this week and, and see where you are affected by Jesus' love such that your geography is affected? You do something in your office, you say hi to somebody, you connect to a neighbor because you're kind to somebody down the hallway in a school because you're affected by Jesus' love for you? Your neighbor on the apartment, your work, your street. If we're affected by Jesus, if we believe Jesus is who he says he is here, then our drone cam should show that. And it probably then should show us loving the unexpected people, right? Like noticing the blind guy or Zacchaeus or the money changers or the Gentiles, people that we wouldn't expect to love or find hard to love. 
can I give you a commercial and an invitation? Okay, so the first weekend of April, we and Restoration Arlington and Johnny's invited and are bringing in a guy from where we went to seminary, my wife and I, Regent College, named Daryl Johnson. Daryl's an incredibly gifted preacher and teacher. And we're going to do something April 4, 5, and 6. April 5 and 6 at Cornerstone EV Free Church where we meet in Annandale. That Friday night and Saturday, we're having a Sermon on the Mount immersion with Daryl. He's going to do the Sermon on the Mount morning and sa- Friday night and Saturday morning. We would love to have you there. Johnny has the information. It would be great if you could register so we have enough coffee. But we'd love to have you there and maybe invite a neighbor or friend. Blame it on me. I know this crazy guy whose church is doing this crazy thing. Do you want to come? But on April 4th, Daryl's going to do a seminar at Restoration Arlington on public speaking. Just on public speaking. He's done this in Vancouver. It's, there's not going to be a gospel presentation at the end. We're not selling you out if you invite a neighbor. But we're doing something you could invite a neighbor to. How many of you love to public speak? Literally, no, little maybe hand here, but even you're afraid to public about it. How many of you would, are, are nervous about public speaking? Right? Thursday night, April 4th is for you and your friends, right? The, the surveys are people would rather die than public speak. So we, as Christians, we will help you not die for that, right? But one of the reasons we're doing that is clearly so you have a way and we have a way to invite a neighbor to something the church offers that's a common good and is very low threat. And maybe that's how you change your geography of love to get courage to go ask somebody this week, say, hey, I know you public speaker work or you made that comment at that time. I know this crazy guy in this church are doing a seminar on public speaking. Do you want to go with me? That's the commercial. Second thing, how willing are you to allow Jesus to sweep out the court of your life? Because you and I both know our courts of the Gentiles are pretty cluttery. Right? The places in our lives that we have let it become a, a thoroughfare for lots of other things, but not an avenue of worship for the Lord. We're in the season of Lent, which, which we as Anglicans commit to preparing our heart, our courts for the Lord. You know, we cry, Lord have mercy, because we realize just how messy we are. If you're here as a guest and you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to look around the room and know that this is a room full of people who do not have it all together. That is why they're at this church, because they need Jesus. Johnny Christina does not have it all together. We all know that. <laughs> Especially Sarah. But this is a room full of people eager for Jesus. And as you read this story, I hope you have the courage as we go to communion to say, Lord, here, are the, here is the court of my life. And I may not even know what's cluttery there, but I invite you to come through. Because it's too easy, right? It's just too easy to say, Lord Messiah, take care of the hill and take care of the media and take care of the White House and take care of the judges and take care of and not say, Lord, take care of me. It's just too simple, right? We don't want to be like that. Lord, help us worship. Help us live our lives in worship. This is a former Archbishop of Canterbury named William Temple. Worship, we cry to God to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Truth, holiness, beauty, love, purpose. That is what Jesus wants you to know. The Gospel of John says Jesus is the way to the Father. He just wants you to know his Father the way he does. 
that you might worship him. So his geography is different. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these your men and women. These your children and sons and daughters who do seek you. I thank you for what a blessing it is always for me to be with them. And I know I'm inviting people to deeper love of you who love you already. Who serve, who want to love Vienna, who want to love each other. Lord, we pray you would give us as we work and carpool and study and try to hear you, we pray you would give us eyes to see the way you see. Pray that there will be people who are touched by the love of Jesus in a new way because we change our geography this week in some way. Give us eyes to see neighbors or friends at work or that colleague who is extra sullen tomorrow because something's happened. Help us learn from Jesus, Lord, and help us have the courage then to offer him the inner courts of our own hearts and lives, to invite him in and say, have your way, son of David, for blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.